Welcome to the Castalia podcast. My name is Isla Ratcliffe, I'm a Scottish fiddle player, and I have just released my debut album, The Castalia. In this podcast, I interview musicians from Cape Breton, an island on the east coast of Canada with a rich traditional music culture, thanks to the many Scots who emigrated in the 18th and 19th centuries. I was very lucky to spend four months in Cape Breton, a life-changing experience that inspired my album. It is the people behind Cape Breton music who make it so special. This is why I have created this podcast, to give you the chance to meet them. When I was listening, I was more than your average listener. I mean, I really searched and listened to jazz, blues, folk music, ethnic music. I was always exploring. Today, I'm speaking to Paul Cranford, a well-known fiddle player, composer and publisher who I played tunes with every Thursday night at the Blue Mist session. Track two on my album features Paul's tune, The Jello Bass, and track six features the tune that he wrote for me, Isla Ratcliffe, and the tune that I wrote for him, Ten Hugs for Paul Cranford. I'm a musician, a composer, a fiddler, a book publisher, a lighthouse keeper. I've done quite a few things over the years. Uh, lighthouse keeping probably uh, sort of set the stage for me becoming a musician because I got to spend a lot of time with myself and explore music. Uh, I'm connected to Cape Breton Island. Uh, I came to Cape Breton Island in 1975 and I've been involved in the music since then. Well, we'll delve into each of those things in just a minute. But first of all, I've got four questions to start us off. So first of all, what is your favorite thing about Cape Breton music? I don't know if it's the music itself or just the culture, but uh, just the uh, inclusivity that that they, that everybody uh, um, welcomes everyone to the tradition. And that certainly was my experience when I arrived here uh, pushing 45 years ago, more than 45 years ago. So, yeah, no, I've, I've always felt welcome. I'd have to agree with you there. That's also one of my favorite things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And secondly, why do you play and compose music? I can't really answer that. I mean, that that almost is something innate, I would say. I mean, I was the baby who rocked a lot, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, was always interested in rhythm. Uh, you know, eventually it became music and throughout my early uh, years before I got involved in playing I was always listening to the radio and stuff and as a teenager I got involved with the musical people even though I hadn't started playing so it was a you know a gradual process but always attracted to music mm-hmm. you know and was and when it was listening I was more than your average listener I mean I really searched and listened to every kind of music. It wasn't just the pop music of the day, not that I ignored the Beatles or any of that, but I also went further into jazz, blues, folk music, ethnic music. I was always exploring, trying to figure out where my place was. And I didn't really find my place until I landed in Cape Breton. I could tell you other things about what I was doing musically before I got here, but really, in a nutshell, I was exploring. And why do you still play music today then? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I still uh, am trying to learn, get better, uh, being a part of the Cape Breton culture, which has that uh, 
uh, gifting quality to it, I feel like it's my turn to gift back what I've been learning over the years. So that's what I've been doing in my publishing and all. And certainly when I perform, I love performing for people. It makes me feel good to make people happy. Lovely. Third question, what is your favorite musical memory? I, I don't know. There's so many. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think I could answer that. I mean, uh, I, could, I could point it to a, a musician that inspired me, but then when I think of that, there's so many musicians who inspired me in my formative years. So I don't think I can really answer that. Who are the musicians who inspired you? Well, I mean, in Cape Breton, I suppose you could start with the ones initially like Johnny Wilmot and Joe Confiant and Doug McPhee and Tommy Basker, all those guys that, you know, I socialized with for years. But I mean, if you go back before that, I mean, geez, I listened to Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, uh, blues musicians, rock musicians, classical musicians, ragtime musicians, you know, uh, ethnic musicians. In Cape Breton, the ones I mentioned certainly got me started on, on, on the route. But then that expanded into musicians all over the island. You know, Winston Fitzgerald, Joe McLean, Dan Joe McGinnis, uh, Donald McClellan, you know, Cameron Chisholm, Bill Lamy. I mean, I met all those guys and spent time with all of them, you know. So it's very hard to, to say specifically one one person and that was a very superficial list of people i mean there's there's lots more than that you know i don't know how to answer your questions yeah i'm asking you tough questions well they're they're <laughs> not answerable concisely mm. you know you have to write a biography i suppose <laughs> <laughs> that could be your next bit. and i don't remember all that anyways <laughs> Uh, and fourth question, another tough one. What is your favorite tune? That one's even worse. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love music. So my favorite tune is whatever I'm listening to right now or whatever I'm composing right now. Jeez, oh. I, I, I mean, to say what my favorite, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I, mm. Just, what uh, is your favorite one right now, then? What are you listening to right now? Not listening to anything. I'm talking to you. You're talk <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I was playing a, a nice tune, a Scottish march this morning, which I really enjoyed. Uh, oh, something nice. by Alexander Troop <laughs> was in Skinner's uh, Harp and Claymore, which ah. I enjoyed this morning. Clooney Castle. I don't actually know much about your musical background before you came to Cape Breton. So can you just tell us a wee bit about what kind of music you were interested in then? Um, well, I mean, it started out with, you know, your typical, uh, uh, you know, Beatles and pop music of the 60s. You know, and I when I got into high school and, you know, when musical uh training was available to him. I mean, if you go way back when I was, you know, grade three or whatever, uh, just to give you an idea of how much music meant to me, I came from um, another province and came into the school system in the middle of the school year. And we'd never taken music because it wasn't part of the school system in, in the other province. So when I, when I came into, uh, to this uh, new school system, they, 
you know, it was time for exams. I had to do all these exams and things. And the, the report card came back from uh, the teacher saying, Paul was very upset about his music because he didn't know anything about it. <laughs> Apparently I cried as a grade three kid because I couldn't do any of the music. <laughs> and then in grade six, I remember a traumatic experience with the, the music teachers because we had to sing solos. And uh, so I sing this solo and I thought I was great. I loved to sing. And, you know, I'm used to high marks and things. So I, I get 16 out of 25. And I said to myself, I I can't, I must not know what I sound like. So I never sang again. You know, I, like that, that totally took the window to my sails because I just assumed I, I must not know what I sound like. So it wasn't until, you know, 40 years later, I started singing. I've been singing the last five years or so with Mario, but I never sang because of that. So early experiences can really scar you. I didn't start actually playing music till I was into my teens. Um, and I just assumed it was too late because my friends who were good players, I made friends with musicians quite early on, but most of them had started at five, six, seven and were quite accomplished by the time they were 11, 12, 13. And so I figured I'm never going to be a musician. You know, I can't do that but those guys also knew good music to listen to which got me started in that world and uh so i started listening to you know great ragtime piano players and uh, you know early swing jazz and it all you know kept evolving from that um eventually I decided I wanted to play like Django Reinhardt and Stefan Bapelli, but I wasn't going to do it the same. I'd do it differently. Of course, you know, you have to do things differently. So that's when I got a banjo and I was going to do it all on a banjo. And I started, you know, I played ragtime music, classical music. I self-taught myself all this weird music on the banjo, <laughs> but it really didn't suit. Uh, but I was, I was, I was determined I was going to do something different. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's difficult to, to do something totally different. And I wasn't in a position where I was being influenced by musicians because in the cities, you don't have a culture like Cape Breton. I was born in Toronto. If you don't have a culture that welcomes you in, the only way you're going to learn is if you go take professional lessons of I guess I had a chip on my shoulder uh, against that way of learning because my friends who were good musicians were basically self-taught. And, and I and I could see it. They wouldn't even go in there. I played tuba in the concert band. That was where I learned to read music and only did that because of uh, I was sort of coerced into playing. I was going to play the stand-up bass and play jazz is what I thought at that moment is when I went into high school. And the teacher said, well, learn the tuba first, so you get used to the bass clef, and then we'll next year we'll teach you that. Well, then we ch I changed schools that didn't have a, a string program, and they also were going to Europe, and they needed a, a tuba player. So I got to, to tour, <laughs> tour with a tuba wow. as a teenager. <laughs> I never knew you played the tuba. Well, it's been a long time. <laughs> It's been probably 50 years since I touched a tuba. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start playing the fiddle then? Well, I was in my mid-20s. When I came to Cape Breton, I was playing the banjo and trying to adapt. Well, I, I had a few fiddle tunes. I, the banjo, technically, my ideas 
that I could do different things on a banjo were because of some of the really good bluegrass players who sort of played in a melodic sort of way that, you know, was a form of, I thought, improvising. As the more I got into it, I realized it was highly technical because, you, you know, the finger picking and, and positioning are not like a fiddle where it's all generally in one position. You are all over the board and the fingering combinations were quite complex quite a lot of memory work and practice. I was practicing eight, 10 hours a day. Uh, and so when I came to Cape Breton, I, technically I could get around a banjo, but, uh, and, you know, so I started learning uh, the, the local fiddle music on the banjo, but as much as I practiced, uh, you know, and I could play quite competently and play along with, you know, good players, but uh, it was all, highly practiced it wasn't spontaneous i didn't have natural embellishments all that kind of stuff and i knew that i could feel that that i wasn't getting there what i could see that these other musicians had that you know the fiddle players had that i wasn't seeing i was going to get to playing that style on that that instrument so uh, after all that work (laughs) i I gave up eventually. <laughs> so what brought you to Cape Breton in the first place? Well, actually, it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I just wanted to visit someone that I that I knew in, in university, and she was in Halifax. Uh, and, you know, after I visited her for a few days, she suggested, well, you should go up to Cape Breton. They've got a quite a musical culture up there. So really, I didn't know... Uh, you know, she, she knew and suggested that, but I didn't know when I left Toronto. I just knew the East Coast had music, and, and I had a friend there, so I went to to visit a friend. Um, and uh, so she suggested I go up to Cape Breton. She suggested a, a musical instrument museum, which on the second day I was in Cape Breton, I went there. And the third day I was in Cape Breton, I was uh, camping on a beach and discovered a uh, a possibility of a job as a lighthouse keeper. So I was only three days in Cape Breton when I got the lead on the lighthouse keeper job. And then three days later, I was talking to bureaucrats on interviewing for the job. And another week later, I was a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> you know, That's so. amazing. That's so quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how long were you a lighthouse keeper for? Oh, gosh, 34 years. You know, the first year I was totally isolated, so I wasn't, you know, I mean, yeah, I had, you know, some music books that I was teaching myself to read fiddle tunes on the on the banjo. And I had to teach myself the treble clef because I played the tuba, I wasn't a, you know, so I had to teach myself the treble clef and then apply it to instruments that weren't normal. <laughs> 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 so I, it was good I had all that time I guess yeah but so I was there for a year uh and then I went to, I transferred onto a, a light station on mainland Cape Breton and I was just a couple miles down the road from Brenda Stubbard who was a teenager at the time and so I got involved with that family I had a, a guy that I was working with who was quite supportive so basically I had a job but I was free to come and go <laughs> as long as I would cover for him what he wanted to be covered for <laughs> so it was a good situation that year and, and I spent a lot of time with Doug McPhee and and uh, you know others that you've heard me mention Johnny Wilmot and Tommy Basker and all those guys became my friends that year Sonny Slade and a number of musicians and then I went back to St. Paul because they were going to automate the lighthouse I was on and because St. Paul which is where I originally was the lightkeeper on it's the name of an island 
a remote island open the Cabot Strait, uh, become what they call a rotational island, which is month on, month off. And uh, that was, to me, a perfect arrangement for learning music because I knew I needed to spend time with musicians uh, to, to, you know, understand the music better, but I needed to practice as well. So that was the start. The next uh, 32 years were month on, month off, which... You know, and my months off were uh, majority of the time spent in Cape Breton learning. But I did go to Ireland a couple, you know, quite a few times over the years. And um, and I was went to Boston. I went to California, Toronto, New Brunswick. I mean, different places on some of my months off for music. I, I was exploring music in different places. But it was mostly Cape Breton, mm. my time off. That's so lovely to have a job that allows you so much time to do music yeah no no it was it was perfect i mean in some ways perhaps i shouldn't have retired but nah it was time so when did you start collecting and publishing tune books probably in 77 as i started to get more involved with people like johnny wilmot and on the banjo uh you know and i was listening to their earlier lp recordings and all um i realized that i was not getting it all on the banjo that I was doing. So I started trying other instruments that I thought might uh, work a little better. The, the mandolin uh, had a different um, fingering that was more like a fiddle. I, I, was, I was afraid of the fiddle. You know, I mean, I had tried the fiddle when I was 16 for a weekend. I, I, when I was still in the city, I borrowed a fiddle for a weekend one time because I figured, well, yeah, I want to do this. <laughs> and I was intimidated. I said, this ain't going to happen. <laughs> so it took me many more years to get there. But anyways, in the 70s, in 77, I also listened to some Irish music and realized that the tin whistle appeared to be an instrument that uh, you could get your embellishments and stuff uh, easier. And, and I, I figured I would get... Uh, closer to a more natural way of playing music if I understood the, the tin whistle better. So I started on that and Johnny suggested, Johnny Wilma, that I go visit this older um, Irish fellow in Toronto because I was born in Toronto and still going back visiting family and stuff in Toronto. So every time I went to Toronto from 1977 through the 90s, early 90s, I would visit this old fellow, Chris Langdon, who was a tin whistle player, an Irish bagpipe player, a composer. And he encouraged me when I went visiting him in, the, say, 77, that whenever you learn a tune, you should write out your personal setting of the tune uh, because everybody plays a little different and puts their own stamp on things. So that's when it all started, writing things out, was Chris Langdon. He, he, he suggested that to me. Uh, he would have been a student of Leo Rosam, who also would write his uh, settings of tunes out. If you know of Leo Rosam, famous Irish piper who made 78 records in, in Dublin uh, from the 20s uh, right, right through the 70s. Why did he suggest writing out your own settings? Was it to kind of clarify it in your own mind? Well, to, to uh, one, solidify that you were happy with where you're going, because, you know, it's, it's very easy to just constantly change and, and always do things differently. And he felt it was important uh, to, uh, to write things down so that you'd, and also so you'd remember it for the future. Mm. You know, yeah, you might be 22 years old or whatever I was, 25, 26, with a sharp uh, memory at the time. But, you know, I mean, he, he was 60 or something and, and knew that eventually your memory's not going to be as sharp. <laughs> and writing helps. <laughs> so that's when I started writing things out. 
and the more I got into writing things out, I also got into reading. I was learning predominantly one-on-one by ear from people. Uh, you know, guys like Johnny Wilmot would teach me a tune and take forever to teach me a tune, or Tommy or Chris, they would all teach, because my ears weren't that good. I, I was still pretty mechanical, you know. But um, as my ears improved, uh, and uh, I realized that you could actually be musical and use music notation. You know, I had the, this sort of naive opinion that you had to do everything by, by ear or you'd never get the style. But that's not true. I mean, if you understand the style, if you've learned by ear, eventually you get to the point that you can apply those ears to music notation. And that doesn't, yeah. it's the case in every form of music. But, but there is a, a bias amongst uh, traditional players that really is, is pretty new. It's really since the recording industry, I think that there's been this bias against music notation because it is easy to learn off of a recording, just listen to it over and over and over again. And then you can sound like that person on the recording that you want to, but that doesn't give you, you know, personal uh, creativity and all, which, you know, someone who understands a style and is using music notation isn't going to sound the same as someone else, you know, we all sound differently when we play our instruments, have a different voice, you know, just like if you read a bedtime story to someone and someone else read the bedtime story to someone, they'd give, you know, different inflections and, and uh, give different meaning to whoever it is you're, you're, you're reading to, or in the case of music, playing music to. So, no, that got me into, to the, uh, writing and reading of music and then uh i i got involved uh, well and also understanding when i got into these older scottish books i started collecting uh, you know scottish books and all i realized that the cape retners were dramatically playing differently than what was in the books because they because they were putting so much of their own personal expression into these things it wasn't that they couldn't read it's just that they would look at it and say oh i could do that a little better so, you know. So do you mean the, they were changing the notes or was it to do the style of playing? Well, sometimes. Sometimes it's notes, uh, you know, rearranging it to, to, to suit their particular technique, how they would, would do it. Other times it's more about the embellishments, which, you know, depending on how you notate things, can embellishments can actually change the little notes, like what is being stressed? Is this a grace note or is this a melody note type of thing? You know, bowing and all these different things, you know, staccato versus legato, whatever, all that different types of things is, is part of interpretation. Anyways, in the late 70s, one of the books I was looking for uh, that, that I couldn't, I, I could see it in the archives, but I wanted a copy for myself was the Sky Collection. Uh, and uh, and then, the, you know, I, I told uh, an old fellow that and he says, well, you know, there's probably more people than you that would like that. <laughs> <laughs> you should publish it. <laughs> so I said, hmm, why not? <laughs> so I did, not knowing if I'd get in trouble with copyright laws or not. <laughs> I just went ahead and did it. So that was the first one, and, and it met great success. And then I did the Simon Fraser collection in the same way. And, and then I started really realizing how differently 
players often interpreted off the page. So that's when I started recording people, and I and I recorded a long, you know, it was three hours worth of, of field recordings for the Simon Fraser collection. Different people playing playing this stuff. All people in Cape Breton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that sort of got me on that direction, trying to get people to both listen to, you know, because, you know, people in Cape Breton want to hear it played with a Cape Breton taste to the music, you know, so I thought it was important if I'm going to get people interested in these older Scottish books that they recognize that, yes, the you know, they're the same tune, but they're being played, you know, in subtly different ways, or maybe not even subtly. I mean, they're, they're you know, it's different what we do here. So, yeah, that got me started on that. And then with that in mind, I started saying, well, I should probably be writing this stuff out and sharing it. So then I started getting involved with the Cape Breton magazine. Mm. And I, I worked with them for um, a few years. I, I learned how to do music typesetting at the time. So, I, I, you know, I learned the old music typewriter way and uh, I apprenticed with an old German fellow for summer um, I don't know, 1982 or three, I can't remember the year, so that I could have, uh, you know, typeset music in the Cape Breton magazine. And I was going to do books that way, but I re it was so challenging. I mean, like you make one mistake, it's all, it's game over. you got to do the whole line again. Uh, you know, so it wasn't until computers came out, I, I, I got my first Mac in 87 with music notation programs. Uh, and it wasn't until then when I, you know, realized that, you know, now I can do it. And that's when I started working with Jerry Holland because, you know, we were, we were friends. I'd been visiting him as well as these other people I was mentioning. He was the young boy on the block, you know, but, uh, and, and he wasn't capable to write his own tunes out. So I wrote them out for him. And eventually we have been doing that for six, seven years, whatever, and realized, geez, we got a lot of material here. Maybe we should think about a book and not all happened at the same time as I was getting empowered with computers. So that was the start of it. And from there, it just uh, seemed natural to keep going in that direction. And I've done a number of books. You know. Yeah, I think, is it in addition to the Sky Collection, Simon Fraser, is it nine books? Yeah, Sky and Fraser. And, the, the, and I did Alexander Walker was another Scottish book I eventually did. And I, you know, there's nine books in the series. And I've helped out other people with books. You know, one of Dan R's books mm. I did the typesetting for, and one of Barry Shear's books. So no, I've been involved with lots and still still doing lots. Still compose I compose a lot mm. too. I mean, I have a mouse here. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Just saw him run compose by. Compose a tune for the mouse. <laughs> yes, well actually, you know, the first time that I heard of your books was when I did something called the Cayley Trail, which was run by Face Roche. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a mm -hmm. tour for 16 to 25 year olds. It's basically to give you a taste of what it's like to be a touring musician. So I did that in 2017. I just finished my undergraduate and Ruri, who is another fiddle player in the band, um, he was a big fan of your books. So he, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, there were quite a few tunes from your books that we ended up playing. And yeah, that was the first introduction to your books and then two and a half years later you very kindly gifted them all to me so <laughs> came full circle <laughs> yeah. 
So what about your composition then? How long have you been composing tunes for? Because, I, I mean, I remember just being absolutely amazed at just the sheer volume of tunes that you compose. Well, I started back in the 70s, you know, with Chris Langdon, who was a composer himself. And I remember, I, I you know, it was the tin whistle, learning the tin whistle. I made a little jig, a very simple two-part jig that and might even have only been eight, eight bars or something, like two four-par parts or something that I had. And Chris encouraged me to elaborate it. And, and, and then eventually, you know, and so I ended up eventually making a four-part jig out of it. And, you know, and then, and then he... Uh, uh, gave it a title. He called it the Lighthouse Keeper's Jig. So that would have been the, the first the first jig that I made. But then it just seems sort of natural as you're learning music um, that sometimes things come to you. Um, maybe they're fragments of things you've heard. Who knows? But uh, I just sort of made it a something that I like to do every now and again, and it just sort of grabs me and when it does i'm kind of useless <laughs> until i get to the finish line <laughs> uh, and sometimes that can be quick and other times it can be days or weeks mm. you know <laughs> to get to make a tune everyone's different you know but I, I like to get them to a point where i feel that they're one are playable and two uh, are unique you know so I, I try hard to do that i mean obviously we don't always succeed mm. But because uh, you're, you know, to to be totally original is just about impossible, especially to have it accepted in the tradition. To have it accepted in the tradition, the the basic uh, building blocks have to be uh, something that's already sort of uh, accepted. You know, if they're if you were using, you know, different scales or, you know, you know outrageous fingering positions, they wouldn't be accepted. So. I often compose on the instrument I eventually play it on. Like I compose quite a few things on the tin whistle, but I compose more on the fiddle. Mm. And is there something in particular that inspires you? Usually it's in my head. I, I, I'll just, uh, mm. uh, there'll be something that, that's, uh, that's in my head that's, uh, I can't get out. Uh, and it's you know, you know usually just a, a short part of a tune. It might only be the first couple of bars, but a phrase that I'm saying, what's that? And sometimes it's a memory and I don't proceed with it, you know. But if the more I listen to it in my head and I think, hmm, what's that? Uh, then I usually will go to the instrument. And I, and I made it a policy for years to stay in the key that it was in my head. Mm. So often some of the, the ones in odd keys that I made over the years, it's just that they happened that way in my head. And then. I had to figure out, well, what would it work in that key on the fiddle? So, you know, and when you compose a tune on the fiddle uh, in a certain key, you know, that sort of defines some of the bowing, some of the the, the shapes of the, that the melody goes. So, like I said, usually I'm only starting with two bars, you know, is the sort of inspiration part of it is, you know, the rest of it I build usually trying to balance whatever it is I've, I've been gifted. That's sort of a process, and it still happens. I composed a tune yesterday. Ah, very good. What's it called? It hasn't named yet. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That's always the tricky part. Yeah. <laughs> and there are three tunes on my album which are linked to you. Mm -hmm. Two of them you wrote, and one of them I wrote for you. Mm -hmm. So it'd be lovely to hear about them. First of all, can you tell us about the jello bass? <laughs> How did you come to write that? Well, 
it just happened that I was writing it while uh, Joey Sanderson was visiting uh, the area, you know, and Joey was building this instrument he called the Jello Bass. I had composed a, um, a tune for his partner, his wife, uh, Sarah McFadgen, years before, and, and uh, I happened to be composing something during Joey's visit. He was around for about a month. And something came together and uh, didn't have a title. And, and so I thought I would uh, make it for him. Also, since his wife already had one, so I had to be fair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great tune. It's a very good E minor reel. So, yeah, I recorded that in track two of my album. And then at the beginning of track six is the tune that you wrote for me. I'd say that's actually possibly one of my favorite musical memories is that last session at the Blue Mist and walking in and you were all playing the tune that you'd so kindly written for me. <laughs> it took a bit of work. It's in C minor <laughs> and it's not my key. But it, it was funny. Uh, again, like I said, I, I, when I make a tune, it's usually because a fragment comes to me in that and it's in that key. When I go to the instrument, I try to match what I'm hearing in my head. And so that was what I was hearing in my head. And I knew most of the paper fiddlers are not going to go for C minor. And I knew you had enough chops to be able to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble with that kind of tune. It is a tricky tune, but it's a very good tune. It's, yeah, very gutsy. I like it. And then, of course, there was a tune that I wrote for you, uh, which is a C minor reel. So I followed that. Yeah, I wanted it to follow on from, from the Strith Spey. So right. I wrote that when I was back in Scotland, but hopefully I'll be back in Cape Breton someday and we can play it together. Uh-huh. And in fact, your voice is even on my album. I don't know if you noticed, but at the beginning of track six, there's a little, I've included a little voice memo from straight after the first time that you played the tune for me, actually, in the Blue Mist. Uh-huh. Um, We're famous. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then, of course, also um, my album started with my final master's project at RCS, which involved collating together lots of session tunes that are played at sessions in Cape Breton. And you were very helpful in working out where some of those tunes came from. So thank you for that as well. I relied on for that for, from a lot of people. I mean, I just, I guess I've been doing this for a long time. And so I, I do have access to. <laughs> you know, different indexes and different things. And I have a bit of a memory. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was very helpful. So thank you. And so what have you got coming up in the next wee while? Uh, It's just a real deep dive into, into the history of Irish tunes. So that's what I'm working on. It's, it'll be the, by far the largest uh, book I've ever published. Wow. Probably be a thousand tunes or more. I don't know. It's, it's a monster. That is huge. Yeah. Is that Irish tunes that are played in Cape Breton? Well, s- certainly a, por- a portion of them are, and certainly that's where my understanding of Irish music comes from, just like my understanding of Scottish music comes from Cape Breton. But, you know, if you look at, say, the Cape Breton Scottish collection and you compare the dotted rhythms and the embellishment symbols and and different you know subtle melodic twists it's not exactly like the original sources and it'll be similar in this book um i'm 
you know, I, I'm acting as an editor, so I'm I'm looking at uh, 18th and 19th century sources of Irish music, listening to, uh, you know, the the 78 era recordings, as well as what I've heard here, as well as what I've gleaned from my own experience as a composer arranger, and trying to distill each tune down to a 16 bar, bar nugget if I can, you know, and that's not easy. You know? Yeah, no, it's a huge task. So Paul, where could listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, my website is cranfordpub.com. That's my last name, Cranford, and because I publish books. And if I go out of business as a publisher, I have the domain name to open a pub, cranfordpub.com. <laughs> Got it all planned out. <laughs> well, it's been lovely chatting to you again after, what, two years since I last saw you in person. So really nice to chat to you again. Thank you so much for giving up your time. No problem. Keep in touch. Well, you too. Thank you very much to Paul for taking the time to chat to me about his music. And of course, a big thanks to you for being with us. You can find Paul's work at cranfordpub.com. If you would like to buy my album, The Castalia, it is available on Bandcamp or at my website, islaratcliffe.com. See you next time.